Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a legend, one of my favorite guitar players ever, from Richard Hell and the Voidoids and so much more, the great Ivan Julian is on the show today, and he has a brand new fantastic solo record called Swing Your Lanterns, available everywhere now. We'll talk about all this in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find the show on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook. Uh, I, th- I think that's it. As an Instagram, right? Okay. Anyway, all those are at Turned Out of Punk on those platforms. YouTube? Does it say YouTube? Anyway, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Lefford Damien or whatever Twitter is now called. If you want to support the show, tell all your friends about this podcast. Let them all know that we have this podcast here that we do each and every week, and hopefully you enjoy it too. I play in a band. We are called Fucked Up. We are going to be going on tour with The Damned. That's right. One of the greatest bands of all time. The Damned with... Uh, a bunch of dates across the East Coast of the United States. And then we're going to Europe and playing some shows with Off and some other bands over there. It's going to be a fun time. Dinosaur Jr., Bob Mould. We're playing some fun shows over there. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc. We also have some records and T-shirts. And thank you for supporting that band because that supports me. And it is very appreciated. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, the great, my favorite guitarist ever, one half of the greatest guitar duo in punk, in my opinion, from Richard Hell and the Voidoids, the great Ivan Julian is on the show. This is someone who I've wanted to talk to for a very long time. This goes a lot of cool places. There's a lot of reveals, big reveals in this one, and I am very excited for you to hear it. Also, I'm very excited for you to hear Swing Your Lantern, the solo album I also mentioned off the top by Ivan Julian, a fantastic record featuring members of Hunks and His Punks and other people, as you'll hear in this episode we talk about. And that can be heard anywhere and everywhere. You can also find out more dates for Ivan Julian over at IvanJulian.com. He's going to be playing some dates in the Massachusetts area coming up real soon and as well as uh, some other stuff keep up up to date with all things ivan julian over there well uh i don't think i got much to ramble on about so sit back relax and enjoy ivan julian on turned out a punk ivan thank you so much for coming on the show you're very welcome pleasure to meet you it's a huge thrill for me. As I was telling you off air awkwardly, you are my guitar hero. You're the person that I think, I think you and Robert forever changed the way people approach the instrument. And I think the stuff you guys did and the stuff you continue to do, I love your new record. Like, I, I think there's some great songs on it. And like, I think it's a, I think tell, tell me lies is like one of my favorite songs of the year. And you know, you're still doing it, but like, I think you just changed that instrument forever, but this is a one I've really looked forward to doing. Oh, great, great. Thank you. Well, I got to start them off the way they all start off, which is, Ivan, how'd you get into punk? Do you the first time you ever came across it? It was just a music form. It was, it was you know, I mean, it was where we were at, at the time as, as a musical culture because 
Um, I'd come to New York from um, from Europe because I, I went to Europe first to play to find bands there. And everyone was talking about New York City and um, this place, CBGB's, and this place where uh, bands could play their own original music and not play covers. And that the and the backdrop for that was the you know the corporate labels were putting out all these cookie cutter like you know kind of cutesy bands with no songs and no meaning or no anything and everybody was thirsty for something that was like real. So um, when I came here, I mean I happed upon um, you know Richard and um, and Bob Robert you know and Mark and um, yeah they um here being New York City. Um, yeah, uh, they were part of this whole scene where people were actually able to play their own music. I mean, that Hilly provided at CBGB's, you know. So I mean, I I I, I lunged at it. The reason I came here, and I was in a band called The Foundations. Uh, you probably yeah, and they weren't writing. They were you know, they done they done it. They were just playing supper clubs and theaters. And you know, I was young and I wanted to write and I wanted to be part of a band that was actually saying something. So that's kind of how I kind of got into it. So going back before that, you kind of grew up in like the Maryland D.C. area, right? Uh my my father was you know like in, in the Navy, so I, I spent a good t part of my time in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Oh wow! Yeah, where, you know where they're keeping all the prisoners now. I, I know exactly where that is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but then when I, I think about eleven or twelve, we moved back. They moved back. I've been there since I was like four or five. So I, when I moved to the states, so they're yeah in the, Mar the Maryland D.C. area, exactly. Yeah. That's kind of like prime, you know, the music discovering age, it seems to be, you know, certainly from doing the show for myself, you know, like 11, 12, 13. That's like when you're really kind of picking up on on rock and roll or at least discovering your own kind of music. Exactly. Exactly. So, so true. And then also, if you're lucky enough, you're getting turned on by people's older brothers and sisters and all, all this other stuff. And you're hearing stuff that really makes your ears and your heart react, you know. So who, who were some of the early bands that you were kind of gravitating towards at that time? When, like, when you get to kind of D.C. that age? You mean um, on the radio or, or locally? Just like whatever, like, yeah, whatever you were picking up on, like, certainly on the radio, but was there kind of local stuff happening around that time? No, once again, I mean, everyone was in a cover band. I mean, that's, yeah. there, there's no a place where you could play your own original band. And if you aspired to be a musician, that was your goal, to, like, have, you know, a residency at, at some place and play either all Stone songs or all Beatles songs or something like that. But I, I I did hook up I mean locally because um him and I grew up together with Ted Nicely and he was in a band called Raz. <laughs> Absolutely, Tommy Keen, produced Fugazi. Yeah, 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 exactly. Bob Rom, the guitar player, you know, all, all those guys. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, actually, here's an interesting fact: Ted Nicely and um, HR from Bad Brains and I all went to the same high school together. Wow! So, so you knew HR in high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, Ted was a senior, so he was only there one year while we were there. Um, I was a junior, and then um, HR was a sophomore. Oh, yeah. that's wild. We all met in the woods one day to smoke a hash oil joint or something like that. I mean, that isn't where I met Ted, but that's where I met HR. That's awesome. That's It's so amazing to kind of look at that period, like those three names that you say there, it's obviously like yourself included. It's like, music legends people that would change kind of music i'm a huge raz fan like i'm a ginormous power pop person so tommy keen is like rest in peace yeah yeah uh, he's a legend to me yeah exactly he's totally great yeah and really really smart guy as well and you know and and, and then there's mike reedy i mean the, the raz i mean they were a cover band at, at when they started but they were a really good cover band you know they really pulled off the whole like you know um, late 60s stones things and um you know Rad, Raddy was great i mean of course you know and you you know of abad baram right 
Pardon me? You know the name Abad Baram? Oh, absolutely, yeah. He was in the band as well. He oh, changed yeah. He changed my way of playing. If I have a, a mentor, it's, it's him. He totally changed my way of playing because I was way into the Stones. And he had come to here from India and like, you know, kind of got exposed to like a lot of the B-sides and all the stuff that we didn't get to exposed to in, in America. So, you know, I'm learning to play the guitar. I'm a teenager. And he's almost slapping my hand going, no, not like that. <laughs> yep. You got to do it like this. You got to get in and like, yeah, he, he, he was, he was great. And, um, I, I owe, I owe him a lot. Yeah. That's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah. That's so I guess like at that time, were, were you guys aware of like George Brigman? Cause he would do that record jungle rot in 75. That's just like, it's, it's like weirdly, it sounds like punk. It would have fit in and kind of like, you know, the punk scene a couple years later, certainly in New York. Yes. Yeah, I, I left town by then so i i mean all, all the everything kind of happened after i left you know i mean mm -hmm. the go-go scene the whole thing dc all of a sudden became this musically viable place i mean but you know some that's the reason i left because it wasn't when i when i was there but yeah a lot of things happened then yeah so your your cover band was a led zeppelin cover band well i had that with ted nicely yeah did, ted did you sing yeah i sang and then ted fired me they fired me because my voice changed when i was 13. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what made you kind of like pick up and leave for, for England? I realized I just didn't have a future there. I mean, you know, I mean, plus I, I got in this gig for the, this law firm because it's kind of a para paralegal coming up to New York and doing research. And I, you know, would come up and spend the night in New York city. I, they gave me money for a hotel, but I would just kind of wander around all night and go to Max's and place like that. And I, and I wanted to be in a, in a, in a city that was like, you know, creatively viable i mean like you know more than just one dimensional because there's you know very few industries in washington i mean either you work for the government or you work for somebody that works for the government you know it's like that's that's your future there mm -hmm. and I, I i want i want i wanted something different so um you know with that influence from, from new york i just decided one day okay i'm gonna save some money and i'm gonna get a one-way ticket to england so that's what i did so did you see anyone like play maxes back then like what like it would have been the dolls and maybe suicide and and stilettos i guess yeah, I mean, I didn't see them. I mean, because I mean, um, I, I I I didn't see them play because I would just kind of pop in, and I actually, you know, wasn't even really aware of the bands upstairs. I was aware of the back room and the ground floor, and I would see Johnny there a lot, though, you know. And mm -hmm. I, and it, one thing that made me decide at the time I couldn't move to New York City because Johnny, I'd just seen him on TV on um, uh, it was a David Susskind show or one of those shows. You know, like, you know, the big rock star and his groupie, Sable Star, and like, you know, this, that. And then I went to New York, and he's there in Union Square, like, freezing without a guitar case and without a coat. And I went, man, that is a brutal place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're on TV, and then you're, like, freezing out in the cold. Like, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah, yeah. I guess London of the late 70s, the only place it looks better than is New York. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what was it like arriving in in London around that time like was it immediately that you got into the foundations or were you kind of like trying out for other groups before that um I, I i looked at it as my job i went around to all the clubs like town and country and um all, all those pubs where bands played and just kind of sussed out what was happening you know like who mm -hmm. was playing what. and um uh it, it took me a month to find a band to find the foundations and how i did it was um these people asked me like, well, what are you doing here? So I'm looking for a band. So they said, okay, we're going to take you to this rehearsal studio called Manny's Rehearsal Studio um, near World's End. 
And he said, and I walked in and I met Manny and Manny was a really nice guy. And he said, okay, just sit here and somebody will need a guitar player. And that's exactly what happened. And I, and my paid my rent in scones. I would buy him scones every day. So, so I, you know, would be offering something. And, um, in that time I met Topper Heaton because Topper was playing with a guy called Gary Moore. Oh, wow. That's so what was, was like, was he like kind of on the circuit as well that you guys were playing in or is it a separate circuit that you just met him through like separate circuit i mean i mean uh, i don't know if you could call them circuits back then yeah it was definitely set separate circuit because the foundations were doing something entirely different mm -hmm. but i mean then again all musicians of course like you know when we meet we talk and um and he, topper and i had a couple of great conversations because he was rehearsing there with gary and i was just hanging out you know just you know trying to find something do you see like Hawkwind or the Pink Fairies or any of that sort of proto-punk stuff that would have been, I guess, happening too? But no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Because once I did join the Foundations, it was like, it, it was um, a brutal touring schedule. I mean, those guys, they, they, there were times when we had two gigs in, um, in, in separate cities in the same day. They'd have the equipment set up in one and we'd go to the other. I mean, I remember like coming back home to London and like finally thinking, oh God, I can get some rest. It was five in the morning. Okay, 5.36, the phone rings, it's Colin going, hey man, you still sleeping? I'm like, am I still sleeping? What do you mean? He's going, no, we gotta go, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's what they did constantly, you know? It was, it, it was, it was a good, um, good 101. It was, it was, it was a good, um, yeah. That's like the British way of touring, you know, where they like have two shows in one day because the drives are so short, they're like, oh, it's, it's no big deal. But if you're up on stage, it's a big deal. Well, especially when you, you know, have been going for nine or nine or ten days or something like that. Yeah. I mean, luckily, I mean, not always, but on those days, so I think they had someone to haul the gear, you know. So I mean, and it was all set up and everything. But yeah, that that was really educational. Playing the what were called the labor clubs, you know, that were up north. Whereas, like, you know, the moment you would start playing, then all the people in the town would start fighting each other, like you know, throwing <laughs> bottles at each other. And and I, I literally did. See play a place with chicken wiring in front you know i thought this was just a myth but like there's chicken wire in front of the stage yeah it's pretty wild you know yeah it's, well that it, it's such a hard drinking uh bar culture there and i could only imagine what those working man's club type things shows would have been like back then where it's it's just it's just dudes that want to scrap it's it's still like that when we start going over there in like the early 2000s yeah i'm sure and i mean when you go up north right to some of those uh, the labor towns right well, I, you know what? It's weird. I found most of the stuff that we've ever had was been in the South, but it's just, I think it's like the idea of like drinking snake bites or Red Bulls and booze. Like it's all this stuff that's like highly caffeinated and like alcohol mixed together. So you just have this sort of like cocktail for violence. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Added to the fact that like you've been working this, this hard, like crap job all week. That's really physical and you need some way to vent something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just as just as crazy as the men, if not more. You know? That's why they need to legalize cannabis and just make them all cannabis works clubs, and then everyone can just chill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> less strenuous, you know, and like you know, less dangerous as well. So, do you immediately go from? Oh, actually, no. Did you go to Europe at all on on tour, like mainland Europe? I mean, yeah, yeah. We went to we went to France. We went to um, uh, what was then Yugoslavia, or you know, Croatia and Macedonia and all that. Yeah. What was it? What were those shows like? 
Well, it, it was great because it made me realize how, how, I mean, this might sound corny, but it's true. It's like music really does unite people, you know? Mm. I mean, I I would have conversations or musical conversations with people in the, some of the other bands over there, especially it's one band called Parane Valyak, which um, uh, translates into Steamroller. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we would find songs that we had we knew in common and stuff like that and play them for each other. It's like it, it made me really appreciate what, what, what you know, we do, you know? Well, how they would have been, would they have been familiar with the foundations because of like BBC World Service and stuff like that? Like, how familiar were they with the music, or was it just because here comes a group from kind of outside? No, they were. That's what kind of surprised me. They were they were very familiar with just about everything, and you know, some of them are really you know astute about bands and and from England and the U.S. at mm -hmm. the time. You know? I mean, it may be because I I have to admit I. I um, kind of was uh, brainwashed to, to, to some degree that like I thought they would just all be like Eastern Bloc people like with sacks on their backs singing Volga Boatmen, you know. I mean, I thought that there was like no kind of enlightenment at all, and I was like so completely wrong about that. Well, it's interesting because that's like you know, and, and and being a product of like '80s American pop culture in Canada, you know, you even have this where it's sort of like that's the perception that's kind of put on you to outside these people and turn them into. I guess at that point, like an enemy. Yeah. And it wasn't until I like kind of went like going over there on tour that like was kind of the end of all my stereotypes. And you're like, oh, yeah, no one likes their government. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so true. I mean, and I mean, and it, once again, yes, I mean, it, it's everyone's posed as the, the enemy, the, the them and all that. And it's not, it's not true when you talk to the people, you know. Absolutely. So do you go back? to so did you go to new york immediately or did you go back to dc or where'd you kind of go after your time over there well I, I had a friend that i worked at the law firm with and unfortunately for him he said if you ever need a place to stay write me and so um when i was in um uh, i think it was in macedonia somewhere and i wrote him a letter saying listen i'm coming to new york <laughs> i need a place to stay and that that was that you know and i mean and he accommodated me for a while what what year did you get to new york this would have been 75 i think yeah so yeah getting to new york at that point like could you perceive like what was happening already like did you go to cbs or Ma back to max's before kind of linking up with um the band um no i mean what happened was there there was this um paper here this trade paper called musicians Cl classified that was kind of like um you know the musicians village voice you know like you know ads for amps and, and also you know people that needed work and stuff like that so i found out about this i put an ad in and then i did go down and see my folks for like a month or so came back when the ad came out and on the front of that paper was an article about richard okay and in the back of the paper was my ad so, I mean, I read about Richard, I mean, just kind of skimmed over it, like, you know, downtown poet, blah, 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 you know, like playing at CBGB's, and I'd heard of CBGB's, but I wasn't, it, it, it wasn't really a scene yet, it was just a place where people played, where Hilly allowed Patty and Richard and people like that to, to perform there, and then there was a pool table, like, right next to the stage, it was, it was just like, you know, it wasn't like the CBGB's that it became later, it was just like, so the guys at the pool table would yell at you for playing too loud, it's like, <laughs> that kind of thing. I heard it had a terrible smell um when jane county was on the show she said it smelled there was like healy's dog was crapping on the on the floor and they were they were cooking chili at the same time and it made for quite the aroma that's really funny you say that well i mean it was part it was partially the the dog crap but it got cleaned up fairly regularly but it was also just like you know the smell of old you know old wood and beer but old wood and budweiser you know like you know just kind of permeated everything i mean and you add the dog shit to that and I, I, and actually, and Hilly's, 
unlike the movie, the CBGB's movie that you hear about, or you see, and I only saw this one verb on it, um, where he's there in this brightly lit kitchen and he's got this big shiny silver kettle where he's making chili. I have Silly's, I have Hilly's chili pot. Okay, he you gave, do? Yeah, he gave it to me because Hilly would cook his chili in a, in a cast iron pan, you know, back in this dark room. And, you know, we were all kind of hungry slash starving at the time. So if he offered you chili for 50 cents, you went, whatever he charged for it, I forget. Like, yeah, sure, you know. You didn't think about what was crawling around there or anything like that. <laughs> um, one day I went in and I asked for chili, and Hilly goes, no, I can't do that. I go, well, what's, what's wrong? He goes, the health department shut me down. I said, like, I can't, I can't make chili anymore. So I looked over at the crusty frying pan. I said, can I have your frying pan? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, again, I, I wanted to know, like, could you perceive what, uh, uh, like, a tide change this thing was? Like, obviously, grabbing that frying pan, like, were you, were you doing it for sentimental reasons? Or was it part of this idea that, like, because this is such a, a seismic shift in music that's happening around you. Like, that's what I love about, you know, punk is the fact that all these groups that don't sound anything like each other are all finding the freedom to make this, like, new sound at the same time. Like... Did you pick up on what a moment this was? Well, l later, I mean, th to answer your frying pan question, I needed a frying pan. I mean, <laughs> there was no, I mean, but th then again, as things progressed, it, I mean, if you read especially about like the, 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 the bebop period and the jazz period in the 40s and 50s, it was much like that, where all these people from different parts of the country had gravitated to New York and started to create the sound. It was very much like that. And I remember thinking, like, I was walking up to see some one, one day, and I went, people are going to remember this place. I don't know why, you know, but there's just something, there's something happening here. Like, you know, it's like, it's something I always wanted as well. It's like, I wanted to live in a town where every night I could go out and see different bands and see music, you know, and this was like two blocks away from me. And I could just, and like I said, they were all, the, the genres were so inc incredibly diverse. I mean, that's why some people say, oh, punk rock, blah, 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 you know, eighth notes. There were so many different kinds of bands that are like, you know, all, but all having this edge and doing their own thing, you know. Yeah, like it feels eventually it, it does kind of get codified, but like it, it's almost like this this return to what made uh, rock music, pop music great, and 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 that's like the unifier. Yeah, and and that's what was needed at the time because I said, I mean, anything else that was coming out on the radio, people were just bored with so when when people got wind of like um and, and you, have, you have to give some credit to to some of the radio stations like believe it or not wpix which is now a news channel in new york started to play some of this stuff you know and people just ate it up so yeah i mean it was it was something that um came along at the right time that people that people needed just like you know i mean i guess you could say the same thing about the seattle scene and, and all that you know it's like things kind of kind of loop back full circle to like it, it's it's visceral essence you know i mean i'm hoping for that again yeah like it, it's interesting to, there, there's stuff that's happening now that that uh, but i just think the idea of a geographically localized scene I just don't know how that happens again in the same sort of way like where would be as affordable to get 50 cent chili no matter how unhealthy it may have been, but like, it just yeah. doesn't exist anymore. That kind of like failed city that New York kind of was during that point, it seems. Exactly, which was a perfect for, you know, a 19, 20 year old to, to exist, you know? Yeah. Kids come up and ask me like, how did you guys do it? And I said, well, 
you know, the rent was $125 a month. I mean, even though, you know, with inflation and everything, it was still $125, not several thousand, you know? So, I mean, and I mean, there's, I don't know how you guys do it, how you're able to like, you know, exist here and try to make music when everything is so incredibly expensive. Well, Toronto's, I guess, a little bit more affordable than New York, but not much. But, and I think there's all these things that I feel like we were like one of the last bands through a closing door. Yeah having a practice space who's going to have rooms for rent to allow people to make music when there's you know people are willing to pay for those to live in and pay you know 10 yeah. times the rent 12 times the rent yeah and 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 complain all, all the time yes yeah. <laughs> had you heard like the mc5 and the velvet underground and the new york i'm uh, sorry new york dolls yeah, i know you had were familiar with but i mean like had you heard like the mc5 stuff or or the stooges or any of those bands the velvets not so much the Velvets for some reason. I mean, of course, you know, Louis had that big hit, um, Wild Side. Um, not so much, I mean, it's, I mean that was him, but, um, but I did hear MC5. I mean, in D.C. I heard MC5, and I heard, of course, Iggy's album, Raw Power, you know, and um, the one he did with Bowie. That, 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 those I heard, but for some reason, um, people associate that with punk rock. I mean, and, and looking at it, it was kind of the first kind of like, you know, raw delivery of music in a while, but like, when we're in the scene, it's like it's not like we were tapping on that. You know what I mean? Mm. I mean, we were aware of it. I mean, it's 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 funny because uh, it was one of the things that was on the jukebox at CBS. You yeah. know, seldom ask me like, and I and I, cause I do remember like, you know, what was on the jukebox, what we were listening to while we were there. Like, you know, that was there. A lot of um, uh, who's driving or playing by the Stones? Like these weird B sides and stuff like that that you know we, um we listened to um. Uh, that uh, the crystals he hit me and it felt like a kiss <laughs> this kind of weird stuff was on was on the jukebox and that's you know kind of what we were influenced by you know i mean well, and that's probably why the bands don't sound the same right because the influence is being drawn from like all over the place yeah yeah i mean and at the same time we would go see each other and kind of just be in, in, in i'll use the word influenced by each other you know because even if we were doing something entirely different i mean someone tell me the similarity between television and um i don't know um uh, the dead boys or or, or or television and blondie okay yeah I mean, where's the similarity there i mean even though they're so affiliated with the you know, same scene yeah well, and you think of the the big five that wind up signing to sire yourselves the dead boys um um ramones. the ramones talking heads the four, right, I guess, or the big four. I guess Blondie signs a Chrysalis, right? So it's it's yeah. kind of a different place they wind up. But like those five bands, like there's there's nothing that sounds the same, yet there's something about them where they don't feel out of place, not just because of the fact they existed temporally together, but there's they don't seem out of place when you listen to them back to back to back. There's something that it's the energy that unites the whole thing or that return to rock and roll or that understanding of what made rock music, pop music, awesome yeah true yeah i mean you could take it back to little richard even you know it's like just kind of get it out there you know what i mean so outside of those five bands like who do you were some of the bands that kind of get left out of the story like who are some of the bands that the planets that was that was the first band i saw at cbgb's i mean because there were bands playing there before the scene started up you know the planets um they had this lead singer named tally another band called the tough darts oh yeah absolutely I, I really like the tough drives. I like um you know what what they were doing. I mean, um, and um, oh God, who else? 
Um, oh, oh, oh God, who would do? Oh God, I can't remember the names. Um, the Cramps. I mean, the Cramps yeah. like know all the Cramps, but like the Cramps aren't like a national name. You know what I mean? And they were great. Oh, absolutely. And I guess the Cramps. It almost feels like. I don't know, like, I guess they feel almost out of time and place, weirdly to me. You know, obviously I wasn't there, so I don't really have that association with them in that place. But I feel like because, I don't know, yeah, like the cramps, I guess, you know, just have that twang where they sound like they're, like, from just a swamp somewhere. Well, they look like it, too. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all, you know, Brian, I remember the guitar player, they're great people, you know. Klaus Nomi, that was another, another guy. There are a lot of people that kind of came along later that did, like, really wild things. I mean, Suicide. I mean, Suicide didn't start out at CB's. I mean, I think they were more of a Max's band. Yeah. Um, but um, when they played, everybody went, what's this? <laughs> Who's this guy beating up everybody with chains, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what about the Mumps, Lance Loud's band? Yeah, I saw them. I, I, I remember the, t the documentary TV show about his family, whatever it's called. What was it called? American Family or something like that? I think, yeah, the Ameri this American Family. It's like the first reality TV show. Exactly, exactly. So I knew of, of them through, you know, through the TV show, you know, I kind of, I mean, yeah, they, they were, they were a great pop band, actually. There are a couple of other pop bands. Oh, the student teachers. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of really great pop bands that came along as well. Um, that, you know, like, once again, I mean, it's like the, you know, corporate wand. If you got signed by a big label, then everybody would know about you. But if not, you know, regardless of what else was happening, you didn't. And I think it also speaks to just how much great stuff was coming out then, that there's all these, like, bands on the periphery. Like, Student Teachers are a band that I wasn't really familiar with. I think Thurston Moore, when he was on the show, talked about how big they were to him when he yeah. was getting into it. Yeah. And, uh, and since then, I've gotten a bunch of the 7-inch, or the two 7-inches, and, and they're they're unbelievable. Yeah, they're great, you know. They're, 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 they're really great. It's like I said, these are the bands that you would go out, and you, and you wouldn't necessarily know who was playing because it was, you know, seven nights a week. So... You know, you go there on a Wednesday and all of a sudden this band comes out and they're the student teachers and you go, wow, this is cool. You know. So when Another World kind of first came out on Orc, was it kind of immediate that there was sort of a, a buzz about the record? Or like, did you did you feel there was an immediate thing or was there already a buzz around the band before that happens? There was a buzz around the band because Richard had left the Heartbreakers. Yeah. Everybody was trying to was trying to figure out what oh, television, right? Sorry. No, the, 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 um, he left the... He, oh, Heartbreaker, sorry. Yeah, sorry about that, sorry. I was like, Neon Boys, and then I guess it was, they were television for a second. And then Richard joined the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders and... um and um, Who was the other guy? Uh, uh, Walter, Jerry Nolan? Walter, Walter Lauren, Jerry Nolan, yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. Jerry Nolan was one... I played with him once. He was one of the best drummers I've ever played with in my life. You know, sometimes you play with a drummer, and it's, it's like a brick wall that's got you. You know, it's just like they, they got you. You know what I mean? It's like it's just there. You know, and it just feels so great with with them with them playing drums. Yeah, he was he was really great. So yeah, Richard had left that band, so everyone was you know in the scene, so to speak, was trying to figure out what he was going to do next. You know, and, and what kind of band he was going to put together. So everybody was waiting to see what what it was. And so, like when Another World comes out, you know, it gets reissued. I guess pretty soon after on Stiff, right? Like I think it's within a year, or maybe it's even the same year. Uh, yeah, but it's pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, the one with the right, the with the razor blades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, one of my most cherished possessions is I got one of the 0001 copies. Like, I guess like the first promo copies really? were all numbered number one, and I found one when I was in LA a couple of years ago. Wow, cool, cool. Did you get over 
like how much touring did you guys get to do like did you get you came up to toronto i think right oh yeah well we i mean it was difficult for us to tour because you know i mean richard and, and bob and especially richard did not like touring so there was a very specified thing we go out and we do like four or five dates in the midwest and we might and we come up to toronto and i think um we, we didn't even do ontario i mean or, or we no, we did toronto yeah i mean we just come to toronto and then there's one scene where we're coming up and the um, immigration officer asked Richard, um, do you have any drugs? And Richard goes, no, we did them all. <laughs> and I'd already been to England, so I knew like, you don't do stuff like that. You know, it was like <laughs> five hours later, you know, we got all of our stuff spread all over the hill. I go, Richard, what's wrong with you, man? And you're like, I love playing Toronto. I've always loved playing Toronto. I love playing Canada, I really do. It, it feels like there was like a affinity between the two scenes like obviously toronto being the the sort of like little brother scene to new york at the time in a lot of ways but like ramones playing their first kind of out of town show up here and you know as you're saying yourselves coming up here it feels like there was a a bit of a pipeline between the two cities yeah ab absolutely yeah yeah how long did it take before the new york thing started to change a little bit because like you're saying at first it's just it seems very small and, and kind of insular but at a certain point all these bands start popping off a little bit well, when all the records started coming out, and then all of a sudden there's police lines in front of in front of CBGBs, you know, I mean, and there's a lot of people that lined up down the block, and that brought you know a different element rather than just you know, I mean, you can't keep a secret forever. Rather than just musicians and you know the local village people coming to see bands, it was people from all over the tri-state area, you know. So I mean, that's what I mean. To answer your question, that was I mean probably a year and a half after everything kind of first started there, you know? I mean, when we first released our first Orc single, so maybe a year after that, um, that's when things started to really kind of pop over the top. And Macy's announced um, their punk lock line of clo clothing with safety pins in them. <laughs> you know, what were your thoughts when, um, I guess like Blank Generation is such like a, a phenomenal LP. Like it's like one of the greatest sort of de debut albums of all time and you know once again to go back to that sort of like opening class dead boys excluded this time because you know the second lp is not so hot but like you're like the one group that doesn't even get a chance at the second lp like how long after blank generation comes out do you realize that you guys probably aren't going to be around to do another record probably about a year-ish or so because i mean the, the relationship with the record company was just you know going down the toilet fast, you know, because Richard didn't like the music business. And so we spent the time, um, like I said, touring um, parts of um, the Midwest and we went and we, we did two tours of, of Europe. So, I mean, we're doing that, but as far as making another record, they weren't really interested <laughs> in our next record, you know. Jake Rivera, Elvis, Elvis Costello's manager came and paid for some sessions, you know, so that we could have, have some demos and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, Richard didn't want to promote it. I mean, he he, he just didn't get a, get on with Seymour, you know, because everybody else was really hungry, you know. And Richard did didn't view the music industry like that, you know. Mm -hmm. It it's funny too because you know all those bands obviously you know wind up doing having huge careers, you know, like the especially you know the the other ones on Sire, um, but there's this sort of uh, yeah, there's like what could have been a little bit because that. Uh, you know like obviously you're all 
geniuses at what you do and that shows through on all the other projects and all the other stuff you kind of work on throughout your careers but there's a sort of like what would that second lp like been like if it actually had come out well i mean to that um i have to say um it, a lot of that band to me was chemistry between the four of us you know i mean just it made it all work i mean when richard played the bass line to you gotta lose i looked over at him and thought what why what <laughs> you know <laughs> but it works so great you know and where i'm going with this is like when mark left the band to me the band was over okay you know that 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 thing wasn't there you know that you know made, that made it happen between the four of us you know so there's no overlap between the outsets and uh the voidoids no 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 i mean I, when i realized that the band was over i mean i just kind of um called some friends and got together and started a band um, so I guess also around that time, the Bad Brains kind of moved to New York too. Yeah. Well, I guess 1980, right? Like when the outsets are kind of forming. Exactly. Do you remember the first time, uh, you, you saw HR again and the Bad Brains when they got arrived? Very well, because I, I once again, it was a Tuesday night. It seems like nobody there, you know, and I thought, let me go see what's happening. Who's playing. And I, I, I walk in and all of a sudden there's this band up on stage, just playing this lightning fast, like precise, like crazy music. And I look at, wait. I know that guy. That's Paul, or as we know him, or HR. And I, I knew the guitar. All the, all the guys were from Central High, pretty much, you know. I know all those guys, and now they're playing CBGB. So, yeah, so I remember the first time. And they blew me away as to how great they were. I mean, they were really great, you know. I mean, just, I mean, yeah, as, you, as you know, it's like live, they were just like amazing, you know. I, 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 bought, I bought their single, Pay to Come, you know. That's awesome. So, they, I guess, yeah, Pay to Come. So, it must have been like 79. Were they still in the suits at that point on stage? Do you remember? I only know this because there's like my, my favorite video on YouTube that I've watched like 12,000 times is this one of them playing in 1979 in CBGB's all in suits. And it's like, it's amazing. Like, it's just like, yeah. uh, like to, to have been there live. I think they were wearing suits. I think they were wearing suits. I hadn't thought about that in years, but I think they were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. That's fantastic. That's so sick. <laughs> And it, was, it was really great though like there's a guy from my high school and i mean like i said what really impressed me was how great they were i mean just as a band i went whoa this is like you know this, this wakes you up on a tuesday night it's really great uh, so who did the outsets play with like were you guys playing cbgb shows or was there like sort of a different scene at that point um we were doing you know east coast east coast dates um so we'd, we'd play cbs maxes the usual you know back, back and forth thing like that you know i mean and it was weird because i was like writing like songs and it, we're talking about 80 81 something like that i think and the whole scene was changing into this kind of you know funk thing like you know like kind of you know uh, james chance and bush tetras and stuff like that so it, it, we found out it was weird we found ourselves playing and then you know, like when we would play everybody would move back from the stage and also the disco started to hire us as well because they they, they were late but they heard about this thing at cbc thought oh let's get these guys you know, over here and play with us you know and they give us like you know a couple you know some some money a couple grand which we thought was great at the time um but the audience just didn't know what to make of it yeah you mentioned uh, james chance and, and bush tetris i guess there's also kind of that well, there's that nine nine record scene, but there's also that it seems like prior to that that no wave scene that yeah. kind of popped up. Were, were you going to a lot of those shows at that time, or were you aware of that stuff, or are you still kind of focused more on Richard Hell? And no, no, I mean, but this is about the time that I mean, we're talking. 
I mean, the last show we did with Richard, I mean, Richard, it, it was um, 79, I mean, when we opened for Elvis, and I think we might have done a couple more after that. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I'm still curious. I'm always have my ear to the ground to see what's going on. So, yeah, when I heard about, um, you know, um, James Chance and James White and the Blacks and the, and the Tetras and all, all those bands, I was really curious about them, and I thought they were great. I thought the Tetras were really great, and Chance was great, too, you know. What about that new wave of younger bands that were coming around that time? Bands like the Stimulators, the Mad, sort of that almost the proto-hardcore stuff that the Bad Brains would, I guess, help usher in. Yeah, I didn't like um, the Circle Jerks and people like that. You mean? Well, the Circle Jerks are certainly when they would come on tour from the West Coast. But I guess there's like there, there's that band, the Mad, where Mad uh, Screaming Mad George, the lead singer, who ultimately became a special effects artist that did the Reanimator. He would like give himself abortions on stage or stab himself, uh, amputate his arm, famously on stage. Uh, you know, all special effects done, obviously. And then the Stimulators, which featured Harley Flanagan from the Cro-Mags on drums when he was like 14 years old. And like this sort of post-student teachers wave of the next generation of kids. Yeah, I was out of town for a lot for a lot of that, you know, because I, th I think by then I was playing with Shriekback. Um, yeah, so I was I was out of town for a lot of that. I, I'd heard I heard it, you know, I heard of it, but I wasn't able to actually see it. Like, did you see any of those, like, kind of bands that would have been playing with the Bad Brains shortly thereafter? Like, because I guess there's a, I'm trying to get at, there's like a sort of a, a cultural shift that happens again when some of these younger bands come in, I guess a few years later, where the scene apparently gets a little hairier, a lot, a little more violent, and that kind of is something that progresses throughout the 80s into the 90s in hardcore and, and punk. If I'm not mistaken, a lot of that happened at the, um, um, the daytime shows. Yeah, the matinees. Matinees, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I'd, I, I would walk by there and I'd see, you know, a bunch of gnarly fourteen-year-olds. I just went. <laughs> 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 um, well, one man I got to ask you about because I love this album so very much. Ever since I bought it, is that Yankees LP, the Yankees thing that you played on. Uh, what was the deal with that band? Because it's like, uh, kind of like a murderer's row of, of power pop and punk people that are involved in that thing, and uh, there's some unbelievable songs on it. Yeah, I mean, John Tiven was behind that, and um, actually, um, Richard and I were living together, and um, John called to have Richard play bass on the on the album. Um, so I said, "Richard, you want to play bass on the album?" He goes, "No." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Okay, John, I'll come up. I'll play bass on your album." So that's how the whole thing started. I just like you know, just went up and played bass on the on the Yankees album in Connecticut somewhere. Did you ever play with Roger City Roger C. Real, who I guess also plays bass on that record, and the Rue Morgue? G. Smith from Saturday Night Live was a guitar player in that band. They were on the same label. No, 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 never. No. Okay, yeah, it's it's a. I love that Yankees record. There's some really great songs on it, and it's like it always blew my mind that I'm like, why are they sticking you on bass? Like you're one of the greatest guitar players ever, and here you are on well, bass on this thing. Taking a couple gigs like that where I, where you know, I played like saxophone on people's records. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, if I, if I'm capable, I, and if they, if they're willing to let me do it, if they're that crazy. You know? <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your experience with doing the Clash record? Like, as you said, you met Topper years ago before that. Like, and I guess you had, as you said, also toured with the Clash by that point a little bit, right? Yeah, because they heard um, Blank Generation. Um, and then they decided they wanted to have us on, on open, open for them on a tour. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and so we, of course, you know, became friends then. But the, um, the call-up thing, that was um, them just coming to New York 
And um, Mick called me up and says, hey, we're in New York. We're camped out at Electric Lottie. Come by and say hello. So, you know, I went over there and just to say hello. And then um, they start jamming on this thing. And I, and I said, Joe, give me your guitar. Joe gives me his guitar. Joe's over on Grand Piano. Um, um, Mikey Dredd was there. Um, I don't, Paul wasn't there anywhere. Paul Simon, I don't remember him being there. And we started jamming on this thing. You know, I mean, and it was in like in, in another song that I think that became Ivan Meets G.I. Joe as well. And it was just me coming by and saying hello. And then six months later, Mick calls me up and says, you got to come get your check. Like, For what? He goes, well, they turned that into a single. Like, Whoa, really? Thanks. Really? Thanks, Mick. Because otherwise that check would still be sitting there. You know, Columbia's not going to call me. No. <laughs> <laughs> and whoever owns them now, Sony, I guess, it would be it'd fall on their shoulders to give you that call. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's really not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. Uh, you also play on that Sandra Bernhard uh, live record, I guess, with uh, Without You, I'm Nothing, right? You're on that, you're on that thing? Yeah, that came about because, um, I, 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 how can I, well, I'm just going to say it. Uh, I was touring with Freakback and, and my wife at the time goes, look, you know, you're gone like, you know, 11 months out of the year and like, how do you do something in town or it's, that, that's it. So, um, <laughs> luckily, Sandra had this live show um, called Without You, I'm Nothing at um, the Orpheum Theater on 2nd Avenue that was a couple blocks from my house. And through friends, it was arranged that I be the guitar player in, in her band. And, and her band was like on stage. It wasn't in the pit. It was like we interacted with her and everything. And I got to say, it was one of the best times I ever had playing with somebody because she was nuts. You know? She was fun and nuts. You know? I mean, you just never know what, what was going to happen on stage with her. You know, So, so yeah. So then they, they decided to make a live record, and, and that's where that came from. That must have been a crazy time, too, because that's sort of like, you know, the, the, the sort of like her ascent, you know, like, and, and like there was like such a seeming a rabid fandom around her at that time and like such a, a cultural moment. Well, you know, it was weird because uh, I've worked in theater a couple times. I mean, and it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's really, um, you know, of course, it's, it's, it's it's all money driven and I mean it, 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 people want to make their money back the investors and stuff like that the first month or so the attendance was okay but then the magic wand happened which was the David Letterman show and then it was booked for the next five months yeah because you know once the people you know see that they want to be associated with it and all that but yeah I mean and she was I mean she was hanging out with Madonna you know all this other stuff was going on you know Mary Tyler Moore came out actually came back <laughs> you know who Mary Tyler Moore is Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I never forget, she came backstage and all these like kind of Hollywood types were coming backstage all the time. And I thought, oh, she's going back to see Sandra. And she comes back and she like hugs the, the sax player and gives him a big hug because she'd known him from somewhere. I thought that was so cool. Um, uh, sorry, you, when you, you mentioned Madonna coming backstage, did you ever play with the Breakfast Club or see her old band? They were like apparently a, a late era CB's band too. Yeah, no, I never, I, I, I never, I, I, I knew Madonna. I mean, but I never played played in her band. No, no, no I, I didn't mean playing it. Did you ever see them or something? Sorry. Um. Yeah, I did actually at Max's. I think. I, I think I, I she played Max's once. Yeah, and I that, think. Yeah. I mean, or maybe more than once, but um, maybe yeah, yeah. She played Max's, and that's when I realized, um, she, she, she doesn't belong here. She's going to be somewhere else. You know, because her whole thing was kind of like already staged up. You know, she already had it thought out. Yeah, it's interesting when you see those people that, you know, you know, have that second gear where they're going to go places. And I guess, you know, like you've, you've been around a lot of these people that wind up becoming pop stars. Like, did you see it in the Talking Heads? Like, could you tell like, oh, man, the Talking Heads are going to have this career? Because to me, they always seemed like they were like an outlier glitch in the Matrix 
type thing where the most unlikely kind of pop stars. Absolutely. I mean, the Talking Heads were from the downtown art scene and used to play this place called the Ocean Club. Hilly would not let them play at CBGB's. So all the people around him are whispering in his ear, like, you got to have this band come play. They're really great. He's like, no, nah, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. So then he had them there, I think, on a, you know, on a really off night one night. And like people went crazy. And then that's when he started booking the Talking Heads, you know, at, at CBS. But yeah, they, you're, you're right. I mean, they, they uh, you know, I mean, but then again, I saw something in them, though, because Psycho Killer, when I heard them do that song, I thought, OK, they're, you know, they're able to touch on something here, you know, I mean, and like people are relating to them. So, yeah. I can do that. It's interesting you bring it up there that they're like sort of this this art band versus like a band like the Dictators, um, where there's almost like this double helix in punk of art meets street rock and roll, and somewhere in the middle is where punk happens. And I find that's like very much like you know almost reflected in the guitars in the Voidoids as well. Like there's sort of this like two style conflict that's coming together in the band that kind of like works. Yeah, very true. Very true. Bob and I were coming from entirely different places. And, and we had a, a method to it as well. We always said we would never play at the same part of the neck at the same time. You would never find us both playing the same chord. So one, if one was doing one, one thing, the other one was doing other. And, and the other strange thing is, I like, guess the band progressed, we started to sound more and more like each other. <laughs> it was kind of strange. <laughs> like some bizarre married couple or something, you know, um, finishing each other's sentences. But yeah, 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 that, and that, 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 that's, that's exactly what, what, what it was then. And that just describes the whole scene as well. It's like, you know, like kind of, like, yeah, these, these things joining, clashing in the middle, thus making a third entity, kind of. I guess it's in Please Kill Me, they talk about a fight that happens um, where handsome Dick Manitoba gets, uh, I guess, a, a, attacks Jane County on stage. And there's sort of like a division that happens within the early CB scene a little bit. We're... Were you kind of like already on the journey of the Voidoids at that point, or was that something you remember happening? I used to like the see. I mean, I, I I wasn't privy to that, you know. I mean, I would go see both bands. I'd go see, you know, um, Jane or Wayne County, and I'd go see the Dictators. I thought the Dictators were funny. I thought anybody that called himself Hans, Handsome Dick Manitoba deserved some attention from someone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there was always there, there. There was that. I mean, so that's the whole thing. Is like. There was that rivalry between the provincials, the locals, you know, that, you know, a lot of us that had moved here were unaware of, you know, so that, and that was one of them. I mean, the whole thing between Handsome Dick and Jane County, and I mean, and um, Lydia Lunch and, and Handsome Dick as well. It's like, yeah, these kind of things, you know. Uh, Lydia Lunch is someone who, uh, well, she's a former guest of the podcast, but also someone that has come up as being someone that struck a lot of fear into uh, Thurston Moore's heart as a young person and Kid Congo Powers talked about how intimidating she was. Uh, did you, do you remember the first time you met her or seeing any of her groups early on? I don't know how about how scary she was on stage, but in, in, in persona, yeah, she scared me too. <laughs> She's the kind of person you just, you just knew that she was capable of a lot of things and you didn't know when it was going to happen, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and she would just say these things to you that were just outrageous, you know, like, you know, how come you don't want to fuck me? It's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's really no right answer to that question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, there's so much more for me to talk to you about. Uh, so at this point, I'm going to move to sort of a lightning round of questions. But before that, I would love to extend you 
the offer that anytime you want to come back on this podcast for whatever reason, you know, the door is always open. I like doing this kind of shows. It makes me feel like I've um, matured or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're 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 still in the in the 80s of your career, so do not worry. There's lots of maturing for us to do on this podcast in future episodes. But um, I wanted to know what it was like working with uh, Matthew Sweet and how you kind of got involved with him. And like, were you aware of him prior to, you know, getting in the group? Kind of aware. Not really. I heard his name. I mean, there were so many singer songwriters out about that time in the 90s. And Quine had played on the record and they asked Quine to come tour. Now, I know Bob very well. That's not a question you ask him. The answer is no, you know. So. <laughs> So Quine said, you should ask Ivan to do it. So, you know, Quine suggested that I go on tour. So I met Matthew and he, you know, he played me the record. He played me the girlfriend record. And then I was with him for six years after that, you know, and I liked him. I like his approach to pop. I thought it was great, you know, um, and, and because his formula, I, I can't really, I mean, speak for him, but his formula is kind of like he writes his pristine, great pop songs, right? And then he hires people like Quine or Lloyd and myself to come and just like screw the whole thing up. You know, and, 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 it, and it works for him, you know, it's great. Well, I don't know. I, I would kind of uh, push back on that a little bit because, like, I think you you're, you guys are, like, some of the guitar players that do give lead singers and lyricists, like, space to kind of do their thing. Like, it's never an overbearing guitar. Oh, no, um, I, that's not what I meant. But I mean, just our approach. Yeah, it's yeah. Something that you would hear on, you know, um, <laughs> Soft Music 101 or something, you know. <laughs> Well, that's that's the genius that uh, I think uh, Jennifer from Royal Truck said when she was on the show. It's like you want to write the great pop song and then just bury it in enough stuff that only the real people can kind of hear it. That's really a great quote. Yeah, exactly. Um, going back to uh, you know joining Matthew Sweet and being in the group, it's kind of it's kind of amazing. Like you know you've you've constantly been around, and obviously you're an incredible songwriter yourself. But like sort of these these genius pop songwriters, you know, like Tommy Keen, and then. Matthew Sweet as well, like sort of these, I don't know, and like, and also like with, with the outsets too, there's like more of a power pop kind of vibe to it. Were you always like a fan of that, that sound like raspberries and the nerves and that kind of world? Blondie, yeah. I guess too. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love, I love, I love great pop music. I really do. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah I have a few guilty pleasures. I don't even know if I can tell you on this show. <laughs> there's no guilt here we're talking about we're talking about a genre that people call a novelty genre and i've done like 500 episodes about it there's no guilt <laughs> um uh, one band that uh, there no one should have any guilt in in liking that's for sure or one artist i should say is sonny vincent um i'm a huge te testers fan and i know you've done some work with sonny vincent were did you guys play with the testers or were you a fan of them back in the day I saw them a couple. They were more of a Max's bands, as I said. So I, I saw them a couple times. Yeah, and, and I and I liked them, but I didn't hook up with Sonny until decades later. Yeah, and, and when um, we were over in, in Europe. But yeah, I, I knew of, of the band, um, you know, back in the day because I I think I, I saw them at Max's once or twice. Yeah, I I love. Well, I'm a huge fan of all his music, like the whole way through the records you do, obviously later on, but all that early stuff, the Testers, and to me, he's like a true journeyman punk musician like and he comes up time and time again i'll talk to like grant from husker do who played with him or you know uh the rock from the crypt guys did stuff with him later on like he's someone that you know never never got that chance to kind of like you know quote unquote make it in any sort of way but like has been kind of a part of this thing the whole way through and and really like a a, a kind of driver 
No, it's true. I mean, he's much more appreciated in Europe. Yeah. You know, he's constantly playing it over there and releasing records as well. Yeah, absolutely. And like a lot of his singles, I think, sort of the 90s on start mainly coming out from Europe. Mm-hmm. A lot of his records. Uh, another group that I'm a huge fan of, incredible singles, Hunks and his Punks. Yay. Do you have any stories about working with Hunks and his Punks? Um. First of all, I was really impressed with them. I'm, I'm impressed with their whole idea. You know, what I mean, the the, the the whole the whole thing of like um, you know, this openly gay lead singer with a band full of women that play really well and sing really well, and he's singing kind of Shangri-La type love songs. I just when I when it fell into my lap as a producer, I went, oh, this is great. I'm gonna have some fun with this. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they and they, they 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 were just great. I mean, they they all sang really great. I, actually, a couple of them I use on um, the, my latest record. Um, um, Aaron Emsley, that was um, the drummer in the band, is also a great singer as well. So yeah, I mean, um, and you know, Hunks is he's he's just Hunks. So I'm not sure what he's up to now, but yeah, he's a wild 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 guy, you know. <laughs> Uh, and I guess a, a guy who I thought was much wilder until I finally got to meet him. Um, but uh, John Spencer, uh, you did a lot of like the heavy trash records you did. And then I think you did something with John and Christina as well. Like they're, uh, he, I'm a huge fan of his stuff. And, um, you know, someone who seemed to kind of like in the 90s, uh, you know, carry on that punk ethos in a way in like a different space. Yeah. Well, John's a perfect case of um, still waters run deep, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and way deep you know and yeah. I, love, I love working with him he, he's the kind of guy he, he knows exactly what he wants but also he'll come into your studio and he'll pick the one thing to use that doesn't work <laughs> it's like I, I knew this was going to happen and, and also uh, a Maryland uh, DC area musician as well who's that? John Spencer I never knew that I thought he was yeah. from or something i i, I you could you're probably right i never knew that he might have been born in connecticut but the, the pussy galore thing all starts in uh dc true wow wow yeah yeah it's like it's it's you know once again there's this sort of uh you know like you're talking about like from a place that really had nothing going on mm-hmm. um you know musically like go-go kind of you know being its own thing as well but like punk seems to open the door for all this incredible stuff that kind of comes out and continues to come out of that city like the biggest band in punk and hardcore today turnstiles from the same area yeah it's, it's a you know dc dc's got it it's it's, it's got it there's a lot, a lot of impetus there you know um a lot of need for need for cathartic release <laughs> um and also john spencer like yourself and myself former matador recording artist wow yeah, so we all we're all family. Yeah. Uh, this has been amazing. And anytime you want to come back on and talk about any of this stuff or, or talk about any of the things we didn't cover, like Gang of Four and all sorts of things, uh, you know you're always welcome. Why thank you very much, Damien. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Ivan, for coming on the show. And you're right there. Anytime Ivan wants to come back, the door is always open because how wild is that? How wild is that? I'm going to do a video about this Madonna punk band this week, too. So if you see it on social media, it'll be a little more fleshed out by the time that comes out. Check out the Turn Out of Punk uh, Instagram page and the Turn Out of Punk TikTok page and my Instagram page. You'll see that video later on this week. All right. See, talk about things you're going to be seeing later on this week. At the end of this week, I'm going to somehow edit together it's going to be a monster editing job. 
a colossal turned out of punk goes to the punk museum, a special two part episode with friend of the show and my good buddy. And I will say a punk expert beyond reproach, Chris Estrada joining me. And the first time it's a panel discussion at the punk museum with Fred Armisen and fat Mike. And then fat Mike came back and Chris and I just talked to fat Mike kind of, I guess two on one at that point. And Fat Mike is the most controversial guest we have on this show. He's definitely the most contentious guest we have on the show, and this is no exception. He and I we butt heads. We don't we don't really get along. I think we admit that to each other actually. Uh on this uh one coming up. Anyway, you'll hear it in a few uh, days now. Gotta get to work. And that is that. Remember as always, Black Lives Matter, the lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. Stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths, different races, different nationalities, because we're not talking about politics. This is the human rights stuff. This is just basic human rights. And I would add to that, a basic human right is making sure that people have the right to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems, because there are people all over the world that are trying to take these rights away from people right now. And, um, it must be terrifying. And so my heart goes out to anyone who has to deal with this Nazi bullshit. And if you want to get involved and make the world a better place, I'm sure there's plenty of organizations right now that are doing good work in your community. Get involved with your time. If you can donate money, I'm sure they could use some money. You know, just, just it'll help you feel better uh, to make, not that this is about you, but like to make the world better. And one day, hopefully the world will be, will be better. I look at kids, you know, and I think they know so much more than we do. And so it's, it's going to be better for them if the world's not too fucked up at that point when they get it. Speaking about making things better, start a band, start a fanzine, start a record label, start uh, a book, fuck, a podcast, uh, a webpage. Webpages were really cool. I learned a lot from webpages. I still learn from webpages. The internet now is like a ghost town for good webpages. So start a cool webpage. And uh, just create your own culture, because that's what this thing runs on, is people making their own culture. And you can contribute and make the stuff you want to see in this world. And I've seen many people do it, myself included, and it's easier than you think it is. Speaking about easy things to do, sign your organ donor cards. Because by the time they come looking for those organs, it's the least of your worries. And then they will uh, perform a miracle with them. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. And you maybe can see it too. Uh, or maybe you wouldn't see it if you're signing your organ card, card, the organ donor card, but you would be part of it. So you can maybe be part of a miracle too when you die. It's getting really morbid. If life gets you down and shit gets too heavy, thinking about all this morbid, heavy shit that we have to deal with, try meditating. And I swear it takes a little bit of work, but if it, if I can do it, you definitely can do it. So try it and it can make things a little bit better. Looking at alternative forms of medication, too. If the medicine that the doctor prescribed to you does not seem to be working, there are alternative treatments. Uh, it's very, very uh, weird when I put it like that, but I don't know. I just feel like I should be more open about the, uh, you know, cannabis stuff and, and all the other things. But that's for another day. All right. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. See you on the next one.